are live from the empire of lies, an oasis of free speech and open debate in the vast wasteland that is the new world order. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is the backstory. Because it's really not just the Biden administration. I usually say that in the intro, that we're an oasis in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration. But really, do you agree with me, Rod? The problem isn't just Biden. It's the liberal world order, right? Yeah, 100%, Lee, 100%. So I thought I'd expand it. What the heck? So you put together a great show today. And by the way, let's have a meeting briefly. We sometimes do meetings live on the air. Did you get the mail I sent you from John? Yeah, I got that. Okay, good. I'm just checking to make sure it got to you. So what we're talking about there, we're excited and privileged to have two great correspondents in the Middle East right now. Today on the show, Wyatt Reed is in Israel. And do they speak Spanish in Israel? Some places, yeah. You see, you see what I'm asking? If Wyatt's there, I assume there's some Espanol being talkedoed. By the way, is, is Wyatt over there calling Mexicans tacos? Um, we spoke earlier, but I didn't ask him that, Lee, so I guess we can talk about it. We didn't even talk about that yet. Joe Biden calling Mexicans tacos. You saw that, right? Yeah, I saw that, Lee. She's not too far beyond her husband. Yes, and it's, it's funny. So I'm just bringing it up to goof on, but obviously it's a stupid thing to say. And she says a fair amount of stupid things. So Wyatt Reed is with us from Israel, not talking about tacos, but talking about foreign policy and other Biden administration problems. Then in the second hour, we have our friend Ted Rawl from a small island off the coast of the United States, Manhattan, uh, talking about Bastille Day, because happy Bastille Day, everybody. And I'll talk about that in one second. And we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320, because we're free speech zone. And so if you don't call, we can't prove that. Now it's free but I might possibly disagree with you and raise my voice because that sometimes happens. I, I admit it, Rod. When I, when I disagree with something, I'll say it. That's, that's the part about free speech is I have it too. And let's, with that, Rod, could you say the name of the show possibly? You're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. That's our great producer, Rod from Philly. Always doing a great job for us. And we want to thank Rod for the work he does on the show and acknowledge the work he does on the show. Now, Rod, let, let, let me get to Tarif. Tarif's calling, and I have a, a big monologue about something that I want to do. So let me go to Tarif first. 202-521-1320. Tarif, you're on the hey, line. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. 
Um, yeah, go ahead, Drew. So I got five quick comments. It's going to be quick. Okay. Uh, first comment is this. There's a rumor I was watching Duran, the Duran today. There's a rumor coming out of D.C. that um, it seemed like the DNC going to try to indict Trump as an October surprise and then prosecute him, prosecute him afterwards. Did Rupert Barnes say that? Because I understand he was on Duran. And I don't like to watch the Duran when Rupert Barnes is on, because Rupert Barnes is a flippin' destructive liar. But was that Duran who said that? Yeah, well, no, it was Robert Barnes on Duran who said that. Right, right. I've been saying for weeks on the show, have I not, Rod, that they're clearly planning to indict Trump. Clearly. Right? I've been saying that on the show. Yeah, yeah, Tarif can confirm that as well. Yeah, you've been saying that for a while. Yeah, I've been saying that for, for some time. Because, do you know why I've been saying it, Rod? Because, duh, it's it's so obvious. It's so obvious that they're planning to indict him. That they might as well send an engraved invitation. I mean, it's it's obvious, but go ahead, Tarif. Thanks for mentioning that they're talking about that on the Duran. Um, well, yeah, it was Robert Barnes on Duran that had said. My second comment is that what um, a Serbian prime minister came out and said that um, once Russia um, kick out the, the uh, Ukrainian troops from the Bas region, which they had killed about a thousand of them today, once they kick them out and take Cummins towards. Then they're going to sit down with the West to try to negotiate. If the West don't take the negotiation, then all hell going to break loose. My third comment is dealing with the U.S. had um, authorizes transactions with Russia related to fertilizer, food, seeds, pharmaceuticals, medical equipment, and also the lift sanctions on a German, the Germany company Gazprom so they can start receiving gas again. So the U.S., it seems like the U.S. is starting to buckle. The Biden administration starting to buckle under pressure. And my last comment is um, um, U.S. had asked, had told the embassy um, in Ukraine to leave the country immediately. And also, it was a rumor that Kyiv is planning to attack Belarus. Now, if that's true, if Belarus, if Kyiv attacked Belarus, then that means Belarus is going to strike them hard and Belarus might invade. It. Ukraine. Now, I'm just putting that out there as speculation. So hopefully, as the Biden administration crumbles, hopefully he have sense enough to maybe part Julian Assange. Hopefully, we got to put pressure on him to part him. There's no no possibility of that, Truth. I'm just saying, it's not possibly going to happen. I, I, I know that more than I know that Trump is going to be indicted. Not to bum me out, but the the Belarus situation with Kiev very well could heat up, but I'm going to say the Kaliningrad situation seems to have de-escalated today, so that's good. Yeah, that, yes, that is good. It did de-escalate. It did um help it out. You know what I'm saying? So that's good. We're going to see what's going on with the demands reason. And we'll talk about Biden's hypocrisy on journalists, because he's dealing with two journalists over there. The Al Jazeera reporter, Shireen Abu Akba in Israel and Khashoggi in Saudi Arabia. And he's dealing with them in an interesting and cowardly way. 
And this, there's no way with Julian Assange remains one of the most dangerous people on the planet as far as the New World Order is concerned. So anything else, Sharif? Well, I'll tell you what. When AMLO spoke with um, Biden yesterday, he basically gave Biden a, a, a lecture, a serious lecture yesterday, and hopefully he brought up Julian Assange um, yesterday. So hopefully you have more world, world leaders like AMLO, especially if the, um, what's the name, uh, LBC, if he get his act together, the Australian prime minister, he could ask for joining science. I don't know how. I don't know if he was afraid of the NATO or what or the U.S., but he needs to get his act together and free that man. Ask for joining science back to Australia. Well, great call as usual, and I appreciate your support for Assange. But I'm just being what I think is realistic. Do you think I'm realistic, Rod? If you were a betting man, would you bet any money? Would you bet a penny that? Biden will somehow pardon Julian Assange. Uh, no, the people around him, they wouldn't allow it. Anthony Blinken and uh, such, Victoria Newland, all those people around him, they would never allow that. If that's going to happen, it has to happen another way. That's all I'm saying. That's not going to be a method. Let me, because we have Wyatt Reed coming on, uh, let me talk about something else. I saw something last night on Twitter. You know Ian Miles Strong from the Post Millennial, right? Correct. He's been on the show before. He's been on the show before. And I like Ian, and I I mostly agree with him. Would you say you mostly agree with him? Uh, Yeah, I would say I agree with some of his takes on what he uh, sees happening over here in the States. So, yeah. Yeah, so so I like Ian. But he's, he posted something last night. He said Trump was right again. And it was Trump talking about Germany controls Russia. And Trump had said in a quote, you know, most Germany gets most of their energy from Russia. And you may think that's a good thing, but I don't. And Ian chimed in saying, well, Trump was right again. Trump is not right. There's no way in which Germany controls Russia. Forgive me. I said that backwards. Russia controls Germany. Germany is an unfriendly nation as far as Russia is concerned. Now, what he's talking about is he's saying, I was warning, I, Donald Trump, was warning against Germany getting energy resources from Russia. Well, do you know why Germany gets energy resources from Russia, Rod? Is because Russia has some Spengali-like hypnosis power over them? Or is it maybe because... Uh, yeah, no, go ahead. Is it maybe because Russia's a neighbor? Russia's close and could run a pipeline there? Yeah, that, that's what I was going to say. They, they, you know, they already have Nord Stream 1 set up over there. That's uh, Russia's abundance with gas, and uh, Germany's going the other way. They've closed down nuclear plants. They're reverting back to coal just to keep their energy going. And uh, I just saw last night that they're telling people that hot water is going to be only be available during certain times in order to conserve hot water. Now, now, why doesn't the United States run a pipeline from Texas to Germany? I'm no engineering whiz, but Rod, do you see any problems with doing that? Yeah, that's, that's a pretty far pipeline, I would say. 
Yes, even Elon Musk couldn't pull that off. So the reason he buys, Germany buys oil and gas from Russia, and they have, and has, has Russia cut off? Did Russia shut down the pipeline with Germany? No, Germany shut that down. So Russia has proven to be a dependable source of oil and gas. It was stupid. It was a stupid statement by Trump. And the fact that a lot of Trump supporters are saying, no, he's right. And they shouldn't be dependent on Russia. It's stupid. It makes no sense. And it's another example of where Donald Trump makes his supporters more stupid. But I'll tell you who doesn't make people more stupid, Rod. Wyatt Reed. Sputnik's correspondent Wyatt Reed is over in Israel. And we'll talk to him about a lot of stuff about Biden's visit over there after we take this short break on The Backstory. And we're back on the backstory and on the radio in the Empire of Lies in Washington, D.C. We're on 105.5 FM, AM 1390. We're joined now by Sputnik special correspondent and frequent flyer miles, Wyatt Reed, who's joining us now from Israel. Hey, Wyatt, how are you doing? I'm good. How about yourself, Lee? Good. You are indeed, sir, racking up the miles, right? Have you, have you figured out? How many miles you've flown in the last year? Oh, that's a that's a tough first question, Lee. It's definitely in the tens of thousands. Yes, right. And and is this your first time in Israel? Yes, yes, it is. So, I checked the weather. Apparently, it's about eighty-four degrees over right now in Jerusalem. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, well, I'm actually in the Palestinian city of Ramallah, or actually I'm outside of it in a small village. Uh, but yeah, I would say maybe it's a couple degrees lower. I'm pretty high up, but uh, that sounds about right. Now, it's amazing. I'm just going to point out that you go to the Middle East and you have better weather than England. Did you see they have a huge heat wave in England, about 100 degrees in a lot of parts? Did you see that? No, I totally missed that. Who would have thought you would have had better weather in July in the Middle East? But I was going to ask you if you were trying to go into the occupied territory. But uh, let's talk about the Biden trip first. Uh, And this relates because the journalist, the Al Jazeera journalist and U.S. citizen, uh, she had dual citizenship, but Shireen Abu Akba uh, was shot a few months ago and killed. And Israel has been, shall we say, remiss in investigating it. They've not really put a lot of effort into figuring out her who shot her, right? Is that right, Riot? Yeah, that's a, that's a good assessment. And Biden was under some pressure from some congressman to ask about that. And what have you heard? Why? What's going on with that situation? So Biden has 
by all reports, uh, refused the uh, invitation of the family of Shireen Abu Akla to have a face-to-face meeting, uh, kind of inexplicable to many observers because her, her family is in Jerusalem, Biden is in Jerusalem. Anthony Blinken offered, after a scathing letter by Shireen's niece, Lena, uh, Blinken offered to bring out the family to D.C. at a indeterminate date in the future to discuss this uh, with the Secretary of State, not with Biden. Um, that <laughs> has not gone over uh, terribly well uh, with a number of Palestinians. Uh, a lot of people see the U.S. as effectively uh, the lawyer for the Israelis in this sense. They are in the sense that they are providing them diplomatic uh, and political cover uh, for this refusal to own up uh, and 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 follow what uh, you know Biden has has requested, uh, which is which is accountability. Um, no real plans so far in terms of what that might look like. No plans, certainly, from the Israelis to punish anyone uh, over that murder. Uh, and and it is important to note uh, that is a murder that's uh, certainly the result of a number of independent investigations, including um, by mainstream media outlets like CNN, who historically have been staffed by uh, people who either served in the Israeli army or have close family members who do so. Uh, so this isn't, uh, you know, some ideological claim that's being made. This is the widely accepted uh, understanding of, of the events as they transpired. Uh, and the Biden administration so far has shown uh, no willingness to, uh, to, to come to terms with, with that reality so far. Now, while Joe Biden is cowardly, you have to give him points for consistency because apparently he's going to Saudi Arabia next from, from Israel. And apparently he's not going to raise the issue of another journalist who killed Khashoggi. Now, whether he's a journalist is questionable to some, but still, he was whether he was killed, that's not questionable. And he did write for the Washington Post. So Biden has indicated today, he was asked whether he's gonna bring that up with the Saudis. And he said, well, everybody knows my opinion on that. Now I'm gonna translate that, that means no, I'm not going to bring it up. Mm-hmm. So he's being consistent about not bringing up journalists being killed. Do you grant him that? Give him some credit, Wyatt. Yeah, he is certainly consistent in his refusal to rock the boat with, uh, shall we say, U.S. allies or, you know, some would say vassals, uh, neo-colonies. Uh, none of these standard sort of boilerplate about human rights, democracy, and freedom that you hear um, you hear them wax poetic about when it comes to, let's say, Russia and China. None of that seems to be on the table for Palestinians. And uh, frankly, the reaction I've seen so far is outrage, anger. I went to a protest in Ramallah today and uh, had the opportunity to interview uh, Mustafa Barghouti, who's the secretary general of the Palestinian National Initiative. He was the former information minister of the Palestinian unity government in recent years. And he described uh, the visit by, that's slated to take place by Biden uh, with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas 
uh, as an insult. He said it's it's extremely insulting, absolutely insulting, were his exact words, that after spending several days with Israeli officials, Biden's going to swing through for about 40 minutes uh, with a meeting for Mahmoud Abbas, essentially to paper over any disagreements uh, and to check that box and then be on his merry way to Jeddah to meet with uh, Mohammed Prince uh, Bonesaw. And, you know, obviously that's uh, not uh, gone over terribly well. People were in the streets uh, today burning pictures of Joe Biden um, and and chanting for him to leave Palestine, um, to go away. Uh, I don't think that's uh, it's terribly surprising, given Biden's past statements either. Uh, people here are not fooled, I would say, by the lofty rhetoric that uh, Biden offers in terms of Ukrainians. Uh, they know that that uh, is really only skin deep that Biden, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Biden uh, once said that if there was no state of Israel, the United States would have to create it. Uh, he was described in remarks by uh, current acting Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid as a great Zionist, uh, one of Israel's longest best friends. And so, you know, I don't think people here have any real illusions about uh, Biden's uh, commitment to human rights. And apparently Biden is bummed because he said if Israel didn't exist, America would have to create it. And he's bummed Great Britain got to it first because Great Britain created it. So he was bummed he wasn't he should run for prime minister. Now, Biden got an award in Israel. Apparently, and I don't know, maybe I'm getting a name wrong. The Best Buddy of Zionism Award? I think that could be wrong. But he got an award for what a good friend he is, right? I, I believe so. Yeah, he's been basically feted in honors uh, since arriving. I'm not sure what part of that um, is genuine love for Biden and what part of that is uh, basically people trying to make up for the fact that uh, Israelis don't particularly like Biden because he's not as as hawkish as Donald Trump was. But uh, yeah, he's he's certainly uh, no enemy to Israel. And they're very clear about that. Well, I heard him on the news today saying it's one of the biggest honors of his life, whatever award he got. And whatever he got is basically like a trophy at a kid's athletic event where everyone gets one. He, he came over there, he's president, so he got some award and he'll put it on his wall and that's great. He's very excited about it. And he's gonna have some ice cream to celebrate. But uh, Biden it comes to Israel at a time when the leadership of Israel is sort of up for grabs. The prime minister's more or less resigned is he still in, in power or is he like Boris Johnson who says he's going to resign and then still remains in power? Well, we currently have uh, Yair Lapid as, as the acting prime minister and certainly uh, Biden's visit will cement his kind of legacy. And people definitely a number of political analysts view this as being kind of a boon to Yair Lapid's future political chances. Now, did you get around Israel? We'll talk about your trip to the occupied territories in a second. But did you get around Israel, like uh, Jerusalem, or I don't know where you were, Tel Aviv? 
Well, I, yeah, I came to Jerusalem pretty much uh, after flying into Tel Aviv. So I spent a brief bit of time um, in, you know, what, what would be called Israel um, and a brief bit of time in the uh, Israeli section of Jerusalem. Uh, but mainly since then, I've, I've been in the uh, Muslim quarter uh, and near the, the old city of Jerusalem, uh, which is, is heavily Palestinian. Now, before we talk about that, what was your impression of Israel? You hadn't been there before. What struck you as a world traveler? Why read? Well, I was struck by, um, first of all, my taxi driver tried to rip me off and charge me double the price of what he should have. Um, and then he was <laughs> effectively bragging for uh, the, the whole trip about these various battles. Um, that the Israelis had waged with the Palestinians, uh, kind of giving me a military history tour uh, of the trip so far. Not a whole lot of uh, focus on uh, culture or geography, but uh, very much a kind of militant mindset. Um, and, and that was, you know, one of my only sort of uh, longer interactions that I've, I've had so far. Um, plenty of people, though, you know, treated me in a more friendly manner. Uh, I was actually surprised by how easy it was to enter. Uh, I expected to spend a little bit more time uh, in customs than I did. Now, by contrast, was there a big contrast between your experience in the Palestinian territory? Did it strike you as very different? Well, I've, culturally, I would say yes. I have been treated very well. Um, and this is also a phenomenon I noticed in other countries like Bolivia, where people are uh, more desperate for media voices that are critical, that are alternative, that are going to give you something that you won't hear on the mainstream media. Um, in in Venezuela um, and in other countries where people are facing uh, U.S.-backed opposition, U.S.-backed coups, um, I, I got a much friendlier welcome, I should say, uh, from people here, and just in terms of interactions with people on buses, uh, it's a very warm culture um, that I've seen so far. Just chatting with strangers on the bus, everyone wants to give you food. Uh, people, you know, my seatmate was almost insisting that I that I try some of this bread, that I try some of his falafel that he had, um, and then you know, uh, little girl. And the seat in front of me started looking at my makeshift falafel sandwich. And, you know, I, I passed it to her and her family thought that was delightful. So it was very, very communal sort of atmosphere. Tonight I've been welcomed into a Palestinian journalist's home. Um, and we've been sipping tea, you know, smoking shisha, uh, just very uh, community oriented kind of existence that I've seen here so far. Now, Joe us in suspense, how is the falafel? Oh, it's the best I've ever had, hands down. Have you had the hummus? Even better. Uh, yeah, it's it's something um, something about the freshness of the ingredients. Oh, and I've had the the best olives in my life too. I should note that. Yeah, that's why I asked you about the hummus. I'm not surprised that it's really good because I was over in Lebanon in 2013, and things you you you'd sort of think. And this is perhaps American bias, but you sort of think, well, how good can hummus get, right? 
you think, how can one improve on hummus? But they do it, <laughs> right? Middle Eastern hummus is better. Yeah, there's something about like the exact ratio of garbanzos to tahini to olive oil, and then having you know the olive oil be pressed in somebody's backyard. You know, it's uh, it's a different level, and I, I didn't. We're approaching levels of falafel and hummus that I simply did not think possible. Good point. Well said, right? So let me ask you this: You said people want to have their voice heard. What do people you've talked to want Americans to know? Of course, you're on the radio on 105.5 FM, AM 1390. So blast it out to people in the Washington, D.C. airwaves. Tell them what the Palestinians want them to know. All the Palestinians that I've spoken to about this so far, what is your message for America, for Americans? They want for Americans to understand the role that our government plays in propping up the occupation that they suffer from on a daily basis. They want uh, Americans to know that it wouldn't be possible for them to effectively be locked into an open air prison uh, from which many of them simply cannot leave, no matter how hard they try, even if they, uh, you know, they, they just can't get the permits. They are basically stuck here for their lives. And even if they uh, love their homes. Nobody wants to be stuck anywhere forever without the ability to leave. Uh, and they all, they all pretty much without exception, hold the U.S. responsible for this because they know that uh, Israel simply doesn't have the military or economic capacity to perpetuate that kind of treatment without the backing of a powerful guarantor, in this case, the United States. So uh, wh whether it's been... Um, the brother-in-law of the, the journalist that I have been uh, out with tonight, whether it's a 17-year-old named Omar Tawil, who I met at outside Damascus Gate two nights ago, uh, everybody has, uh, not everybody, but, but a huge portion of the population has their own personal experience with being locked up um, effectively indefinitely under what's called uh, administrative detention. It's a, essentially a kind of martial law style uh, style order that allows Israel to indefinitely detain whoever they want for whatever reason. And they don't have to offer a reason. That's uh, kind of the beauty of it from their perspective. They can simply claim that uh, X, Y, or Z person poses some kind of threat, and that is enough to detain them for a six-month block, and then renew that uh, indefinitely for another six months, another six months. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the journalist that I'm speaking with, his brother-in-law, has spent close to 11 years. Uh, he's been in prison 11 times for close to seven years for nonviolent, uh, quote-unquote, crimes. Uh, that 17-year-old who I spoke about uh, was just released earlier this year. Uh, he served 10 months in prison for allegedly throwing a rock. Uh, at an Israeli soldier. And this is just the norm. This is kind of something that people here have uh, learned to not not to accept, but that they, uh, under the current system, they have no recourse for. Um, and there's a, a, a sadness and a bitterness there that uh, it seems the world is willing to allow for this to go on more or less indefinitely. Um, and, you know, in very stark contrast, I should add to the, the response from the so-called international community, 
by which uh, we generally mean the United States and Western Europe, Australia, Israel, and Japan, um, the lack of response over 70 years of Palestinian apartheid, and then contrast that with the past five months uh, and this daily barrage of outrage porn over the situation in Ukraine. Uh, and there's just no contest. It becomes immediately clear that um, the mainstream media, the U.S., Western Europe do not actually have any real deep-seated beliefs about the sanctity of life, about freedom and democracy. Uh, they have, quote-unquote, national and strategic interests. And in the case of Israel, in the case of Saudi Arabia, it seems that the, those strategic and national interests simply trump uh, any, any uh, references to human rights and democracy. Now, as I mentioned, I went to Lebanon in 2013, and despite all the awful stuff that the U.S. was doing, one of the things that struck me is the people I talked to didn't seem hostile towards me as an American. They knew I was an American, mm -hmm. and my government was doing lots of awful stuff. Have you had that same experience? That people aren't. I. People, yeah, go ahead, Wyatt. I absolutely have. That's been <laughs> that's been overwhelmingly my experience so far. I'll tell people, you know, I'm an American. I got one reaction today from a uh, bus driver who said, uh, you know, he said, "Well, I'm going to tell you, we hate America, but we love Americans. You know, we love American people, but we hate your government." Um, and frankly, even though I've only been here a couple of years, it's, I mean, sorry, a couple of days, uh, it's not hard to see why when you see firsthand the consequences of this, of this, uh, this, what, what Biden, you know, referred to what this joint statement referred to as a sacrosanct relationship between the U S and Israel. Uh, when you see the consequences of that firsthand, uh, it's pretty hard not to sympathize. I gotta be honest. Yes, it, it was it was palpable. It, it struck me when I was over there, it was surprising and noticeable, right? Yeah, and I mean, again, and to you know, not to compare apples to oranges, but this is my experience all throughout Latin America as well. People will tell you right up front as soon as they meet you, oh, you know, we love American people, we hate your government. And, you know, it's it's certainly easy to understand why. And especially when you kind of consider that in many ways, the United States is the cultural capital of the world. Uh, one of our main exports besides weapons uh, is our music, our movies, our TV shows, all the things that color people's understandings of not just the United States, but of their own worlds as well. Uh, people form attachments to movie characters. They form attachments to songs. Uh, they don't hate American culture. They uh, they hate what uh, American governance means for their own lives. And, you know, it's it's difficult to find a country in this day and age where people are not suffering directly as a result of the U.S. policies uh, in their region, especially now when we're dealing with double digit inflation all across Europe. Uh, we're dealing with massive increases in food pr prices all across the world. Uh, many people, I think, I think a lot of Palestinians speak for much of the world when they say that we are simply tired of dealing with 
the ramifications of U.S. policy. And that's my experience as well. I've never been to Palestine, but in Lebanon, I was surprised by how many you didn't even need to talk to people. You could just look around and see U.S. movie posters. Have you seen that in in Palestine? Lots of United States movie posters on the wall shops or wherever. Well, I haven't been to a theater, but uh, you, uh, you see the advertisements. I mean, you see McDonald's franchises, things like that. Um, that right. is that is sort of the representation of American culture abroad, and you know that's people's uh, people's connections to it through us. And I actually it, it makes me remember, uh, you know, in what U.S. media likes to refer to as the the so-called coup on January sixth. Uh, the riot on the Capitol. Uh, I remember a significant turning point to to that. In uh, to me, in all of that was the moment that companies like Coca Cola and McDonald's all got together to write this statement repudiating this because they were worried about America's brand. Right? They were worried that this uh, uh, the attack on the Capitol, as as mainstream media calls it, was uh, irreparably damaging America his brand. This is, uh, this is a form of soft power that um, the United States could employ for the benefit of the rest of the world um, instead of simply weaponizing it. So Ronald McDonald is popular over there. But let's finally ask you about Joe Biden. Do you get any sense from people in Palestine or even in Israel how they, how they over there compared Joe Biden to past U.S. presidents, Trump, Obama, anyone. How does, is Biden more popular over there than he is over here? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, I mean, the, the thing was, Trump actually kind of stood for something. You could, you could disagree with it, and I certainly did in uh, many, many regards. Uh, but he did speak his mind, and he said what he believed often to uh, much to the chagrin of those interviewing him. And uh, Biden doesn't really inspire that same feeling among people. Uh, he inspires a pretty lukewarm reaction, mainly antipathy from the Palestinians that I've talked to and mainly kind of um, mild approval at best from, is from Israelis, especially uh, the more hardcore Zionists. Uh, who view him as a much more watered-down Donald Trump. The Palestinian response is pretty similar. He's effectively a much more watered-down Donald Trump. He's pursuing the same policies in terms of normalization with the Gulf state monarchies, in terms of uh, never-ending occupation while you know mouthing platitudes about a two-state solution. Uh, he's, he's proceeded with all of these Trump-era policies um, that people in... in um, Palestine, uh, by and large, hated, um, and you know, so he's not—he's not certainly not really scoring any points uh, among foreign audiences. I think for Biden, as much as for the Israeli officials that he's been meeting with, this is uh, this is more for domestic consumption. Last question for Wyatt Reed. Simple question: Are you planning? Have you seen any of the historical sites over there, or are you planning to, Wyatt? Well, I'm, I'm at one right now. Uh, I'm in a village called Bergaseni, and it's a, a historical site. Uh, Abraham 
was here. That was Wyatt Reed from Israel and occupied Palestine. Great report from Wyatt. Let's take a short break and we'll come back with more on the backstory. Once again, I want to thank White Reed for a great report. He's our special correspondent, and he was in Occupy Palestine, but he's been in Israel too, covering the Biden uh, visit. And it's a great report from White. What do you think, Rod? White, when he's uh, traveling across the globe. And it is my experience. I talked to him about this. It's weird when you go overseas at a country. Well, you'd understand it if the citizens didn't like Americans, right? Given what's going on, U.S. weapons killing people in occupied Palestine, you'd get it if they didn't like you and you hadn't done anything, but you're American. It's understandable, but it really is kind of overwhelming. You, you, you're struck by the warmth that they have towards Americans. And I got to say, I'm the person, I'm the radio host on Sputnik, one of them. There's a couple of us, but there's some of us who don't take this view. I really like capitalism. Do you know that, Rod? Yeah, I think if anybody listens to at least a couple of episodes, you you would understand that. Yeah, so I'm in favor of, of business. And in what he talked about, it's interesting, the things they like about us, McDonald's and the movies, for instance, our entertainment media is stuff that we we sort of take for granted. And you wouldn't think it should be anything that people internationally should like us for. But they do. And not because the burgers are good. There's a weird warmth that you find from people in the Middle East. That was my experience. I'm not surprised that Wyatt is having the same experience, but it's good to hear. So it gives you some hope. Now, let me take some hope away. So I was thinking about this, and a lot of what we're dealing with on the Russia show is going to be expanding on this theme. If you went to the gas station, Rod, and you tried to buy gas, and they said, we're out, and then you went back the next day, and they were still out. And a week later, they were still out. You would say that there's a gas crisis, a shortage that you notice, correct? It's not yeah. your question. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would obviously notice that, Lee. Right. And it's the same thing at the grocery store. If you went and they didn't have bread three weeks in a row, it's a crisis or a shortage. Obviously, right? So I'm going to talk about the crisis. And I'll tell you what else you you notice. If it went on for weeks, you'd say, I guess they don't have any bread or gasoline or whatever, and they're not going to get some. No one's stepped in to fill the void and supply that 
stuff. What, whatever you're talking about, be it gas or bread. Does that make sense? Like you'd go, why is no one stepping in to supply? I, I understand maybe a day or two, a crisis, and they're out of gas. But you'd think their gas station, they would figure out another supplier. Right, Rod? Yeah, no, I agree, I agree with that, Lee. No. You got to find other solutions. You got to find solutions to your problem. Now, I'm going to tell you what we have a crisis of and a shortage of. And it's a real crisis because no one's stepping in. It's an important, as, I'd say, as important as those other things. In fact, in some ways, more important. We have a crisis worldwide of political leadership. We have a political leadership crisis. We saw it today. We had the G7, when was it, a month ago, a few weeks ago, three weeks ago, the G7 yeah. conference. Yeah. But since then, two of the seven, Boris Johnson and Italy's Prime Minister Draghi, he resigned today. So two of the leaders of the G7 nations that were at that conference posing for pictures and smiling, giving thumbs up, are gone. And in the U.S., everyone knows about Biden's problems. But we talked about the polling yesterday that 95 percent of young Democrats want a different leader. And 64 percent of Democrats broadly want to see someone else from Biden run for president in 2024. But the part that I mentioned about no one stepping in to supply that you notice with Johnson, we've talked about the 10 people running for prime minister, and it's probably down below that because they had to come up with 20 sponsors, which is hard. But no one well-known and no one really stepping in to the breach. Does that make sense? No one's, not only are there no political leaders worldwide with popularity, except Vladimir Putin. Have you noticed that? The only world leader I can think of, aside from maybe Viktor Orban, who's popular, whose approval ratings are high, is Vladimir, Vladimir Putin. So I'll come back to that. But in the new world order, all the political leadership is in crisis. The leaders are dropping like flies, and there's no one stepping into the breach to supply more political leadership. And with that, what, let's, you think, well, surely the U.S. is an exception to that rule. Well, let's look at one of the people who's touted as a future political leader. Let's play the clip from AOC. Someone caught her on the steps of the Capitol and apparently had their phone or whatever and ask her about Antifa, and just listen to this woman, or should I say girl, because she sounds like, is it insulting to say that I don't think she sounds very bright in this clip, Rod? Do you, do you think she sounds like a genius in this clip? Um, I've never found her to, to sound very brightly, so um, this, just, uh, this just adds to that. Yes, 
she she seems like a normal person. And I don't want political leaders. I want political leaders to be above average in intelligence and uh, command of the issues and articulateness and everything else. Listen to if you have any confidence in the political leaders of tomorrow by listening to AOC confronted on the Capitol and speaking extemporaneously. Let's play it. These insurrectionists. Like Antifa? And that there were actual officers working with this, and we never got to the bottom of that, and we never got any answers about that. And then to this day, we're just supposed to pretend that that never happened. I have no idea what happened to the people on the inside who were very clearly sympathetic with what was going on and opening the doors wide open for that. And we're, I'm supposed to sit here and pretend like none of that ever happened. And then right afterwards, you have a massive, you know, you just have this idea that throwing money at that problem is going to make it go away without any buildings. accountability. And so this is, this is where these things are breaking down. We're not safe. And it's not just about members of Congress not being safe. The Black food staff matter. workers aren't safe. The Black janitors aren't safe. Like, we need to get to the bottom of this. So that's all I got to say. Thank you, Congresswoman. There you go. There's the future of political leaders in this country. AOC. Talking about the January 6th hearing. And do you notice in that she admitted to the Capitol Police? You've seen the footage, Rod. On January 6th, the police held the door open for people to get in. Did you see that? Yeah, Lee, I've seen a, a lot into that. Uh, Gateway Pundit did a, a extensive report on that. You know, the doors are mag- magnetically locked, so they have to be held open. Yes. And everybody's seen lots of that stuff. But generally speaking from her tone, and the way she's talking, she doesn't seem like a serious person. Am I mean, Rod? No, not at all. She's not a serious person. Yes. Now, oh, by the way, did you notice on the January 6th thing, who showed up in the New York Times and they did a big piece on him? He's finally broken his silence. Uh, no, I missed this one, Lee. Now, have you seen the guy on footage saying, tomorrow we got to go into the Capitol? And everybody starts shouting FBI at him on January 5th. Yeah, yeah. The, well, that was Ray Epps. Right. Ray Epps did an interview with the New York Times. And Ray Epps was basically saying, poor me. It's been horrible. It's not as horrible as being in jail. But let's take a short break. When we come back, if we can't count on AOC, maybe the older seasoned citizens, politicians, will give us more hope. We'll hear more about that after this short break on The Backstory. from the empire of lies, an oasis of free speech and open discussion 
in the vast wasteland that is the New World Order. Joined this hour by guest co-host Carl Aaron on the backstory. And we're pleased and honored to be joined by Carl Aaron this hour. Hey, Carl, how are you doing? I'm all right, Lee. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. So we were talking about the crisis in political leadership around the world that we're seeing. Did you hear any of that discussion? Uh, I I got to hear your clip of AOC, so thank you for that. Well, so obviously the young politicians don't give you much hope, but let's take a... We got something else that's going to maybe, maybe make you more hopeful. So, Carter, try doing the announcer duties, say the name of the show, and watch what happens. You're listening to The Backstory. Okay, so there was a young woman, AOC, and she doesn't give you much confidence in political leaders, but maybe an older seasoned citizen will restore your faith in that. She, she was asked about Donald Trump, and let's play that clip, shall we? Hit it. Trump has indicated that he plans to announce a 2024 run in the next month or so. What impact would that have on the midterms and would it benefit Democrats, in your opinion? Do I ever even mention his name when I even waste my time talking about him? What I will say is, and I'll say this and I've said it again and again, Democrats have absolutely no intention of losing the House in November and the Senate, too. Uh, We are mobilized, we are fortified, we have great candidates, and we have a great, our country is at risk. Our democracy is at risk. But what we are campaigning on are the kitchen table issues that affect America's working families. So they know the difference between a Democratic and Republican administration on top of uh, uh, Congress, on top of which on top of which our democracy is at stake. I don't speculate on who's running in 2024, even if it's the former occasional occupant of the White House. That's up to the Republicans to figure out what impact it may have on them. But we do know uh, that if people vote, women vote, women win, and so do their issues. So that's what we're we're about. First off, I'm offended that she acknowledges the existence of women. She says women have issues, but who's a woman? Carter? Yeah, I was going to ask, how does she know what a woman is? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's it, it's interesting to watch the reaction to the Dobbs decision because suddenly it's a women's issue. But, um, you know, three months before then it was birthing persons. Uh, but we've gone back to women, I guess. So, now, hey, whatever Nancy works at the Pelosi time, had- Lee. And Nancy Pelosi has no intention of the Republicans winning Congress. But do you think that's mere self-delusion on her part, as though wishing will make it so, Carter? Uh, yes, but I expect her to speak that way, right? I mean, she that's how you would expect her to speak, is to project confidence and, and say that they're going to win. Um, I... I I don't know. I mean, I think, look, every midterm election, typically you have uh, the the 
party that's not the president's party usually does a little bit better. I think that's standard, isn't it? Yes. So, and, you know, uh, I think she's just trying to project confidence. That's all. And she's an example of what I've been talking about all week and we'll talk about, especially today on Bastille Day. You saw, Carter, what's going on in Sri Lanka. The protests and the people swimming in the guy's pool and everything else. The chaos in Sri Lanka, right? You, you saw uh, that yes, footage. Yes, briefly. I, w- I, was, uh, I was thankfully on vacation for two weeks and missed everything, but I did notice the pool party protest. Yeah. Yes. And I think, you know, I've been studying history because I think it's instructive to look at the way things have gone down in the past. And it strikes me on Bastille Day, and Ted Raw will be on us with us to talk about that Bastille Day and the history of Bastille Day. But Sri Lanka struck me as the kind of thing where the people just are sick of their leadership and in overwhelming numbers take over. Right. It struck me as that kind of protest that we've had historically in the past few times. And I think America's due for it. I think Pelosi, who's worth tens of millions of dollars. Now, she's a representative from your state, right? You're Californian, correct? I'm sorry, but yes. Now, do you think that anybody can explain how she's become worth tens of millions of dollars? Is that an insult to every voter's intelligence to say that is not it's the definition of corruption? Is it sure. not? Sure. Uh, sure, but you got to understand I think a lot of the people that support Pelosi and and frankly a lot of the people that support uh that are partisan and support one party, typically the Democrats, uh I don't think that they are operating off of universal principles or really care about uh, the the means. They're more of an ends justify the means type of uh, crowd. In fact, you know, I think you and I have spoken previously about Saul Alinsky being a an, an influence, uh, a huge influence uh, on leftist politics and leftist activism. And he uh, he is explicit with respect to the end justifying the means. So I don't think they care whether she gets rich or gets money from China or whatever else she does or is corrupt. It doesn't it doesn't matter. Uh, She's on their side and she's pushing the progressive agenda and that's all they care about. Well, I'd say that's true until it's not. In other words, they may essentially support Nancy Pelosi, but once things get so bad, if there starts to be energy, you know, what is gas in California now? Six bucks? Uh, Last I checked. And I haven't filled up in California for a couple of weeks, but it was seven bucks uh, for the cheap stuff. Right. So once things get so bad, particularly when food starts being an issue, and we can talk about that later, then things turn around really, really quickly. And I'm glad you brought up Solinsky because the pool, pro, the the people going into the swimming pool in the Sri Lankan leader's house illustrates in a, one of Solinsky's rules for radicals. Do you know which one? Uh, I don't. Tell me which one. Solinsky, one of his rules for radicals, I forget which one it is. I think it's seven. Is a successful tactic is one that your P 
people enjoy. So in other words, oh, I, I do swimming recall at that the, one. Yeah. Swimming at the pool. That's a fun protest, right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it did. It I, really does look like a pool party. If you see pictures, it does. And I saw another piece of footage of a couple of people watching his TV. They were chilling out on the couch and on the floor and watching. And you know what they're watching on the TV? These protesters in Sri Lanka. No, what? Tell me this is not the most meta thing ever. They were watching coverage of the protests. <laughs> yeah, well, that I mean, it's a little bit narcissistic. I would expect that, I guess. Right. Hey, what are they saying about us? Right. It's protest and chill. Of, of, yeah. of popular date activity. But <laughs> I'm seeing a world and surely you've been on vacation. Hopefully you enjoyed yourself, Carter. But surely you know the farmers in Holland, correct? Yes. And the farmers in Holland have been joined by German farmers. And I'm saying seeing a world where politically, as I mentioned earlier, that Italian Prime Minister Draghi is out. Boris Johnson is not leaving yet. He's out in theory, but he hasn't left. But uh, a lot of these leaders, can you name, aside from Vladimir Putin, and Viktor Orban, leaders around the world, people like name one, name one, Carter. Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Uh, certainly not any leaders in power that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, you know, you have people like Marianne Le Pen who are getting some uh, increased popularity, but not enough to, you know, not enough enough to be in charge. I don't know. Even even Xi Jinping is is. Uh, on the outs with his uh, with his his little committee, uh, they're not happy with him. So yeah, I don't know. I don't think I can. Can you name a uh, popular leader? No, there's not. There really isn't across Europe. There really isn't one. And even Vladimir Zelensky yesterday, Mark Svoboda pointed out that when Vladimir Zelensky, when the Russian military action started, he was at thirty three percent approval. Thirty three. So he was very unpopular with his own people. And maybe the war has galvanized some support for him. But still, there's a leadership crisis. Now, part of the thing about Bastille Day and the Sri Lankan protest is it's what I call a protest, a negative protest. There are two kinds of protests. There are ones where people say, we don't want this leader. And we're protesting against this thing. But the ones that last are protests for something where people have someone they want. And worldwide, I'm seeing uh, it could be argued as a form of nihilism. I notice people, even in America, do you notice talking to your friends and neighbors that they're easily name stuff they don't like, but if asked what they want, they don't have anything really that they desire. And I'm talking on the left and right, whoever, they're quick to criticize, but they can't name what they want. Do you see what I'm saying, Carr? I think you're spot on with that, Lee. Um, and, and I think it's, I think one of the things that's gotten, uh, 
more and more rare in America is the ability of a leader to articulate a principled vision. Um, even, I mean, even if you disagree with it, even though there's not even anyone on the left who articulates principled visions, it's, you know, I might disagree with them, but I, you don't even really see that on the left. You certainly don't see it on the right. The conservatives haven't been principled possibly ever. Uh, you know, they're, as Michael Malice says, they're progressives driving the speed limit. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it is getting worse. And you, that's why I think the last, the last leader that I think the last politician, uh, other than Trump, but I mean, the kind of the, the smaller politicians that people really rallied around that was articulating, um, a vision might've been someone like Ron Paul, although even he was mostly critical and less about articulating a vision. So I'm not. I'm not sure he even counts. You know, I agree with you. He's about as close as you come. And so what what could that vision be? The reason I think it's not going to come from the left is because the left's main tenant is anti-capitalism. And, you know, when you talk to people on the right, let, let me give an example. I think it's important on some things to be able to articulate a positive vision, but acknowledge problems. So you like capitalism, right, Carr? Very much. But can you name problems with consumerism? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the big problem. Sure. The fundamental problem with capitalism is that the popular thing rises to the top. And if you've got a sick culture, that means you get sick things that rise to the top. I mean, you know, it's not capitalism isn't a, a cure all. I still think it's the most just economic system, but it doesn't solve all your problems. But see what you just did there? What you just did there is something leftists typically, particularly Democratic leftists and woke leftists, can never do. They can never acknowledge that consumerism has benefited their own lives in many ways and say, well, sure, I have this and it's great. I have a cell phone and it's awesome. And I was able to graduate with a useless degree and get hired within that same academic system or whatever's positive. They can never articulate that. But what you just did in principle there, without even getting the specifics, is you said, yes, it's good, but I can see some problems. And I was thinking about this yesterday I've said before, the neoliberals have given human rights a bad name and democracy. You heard Nancy Pelosi say, our democracy is in crisis. Well, the way in which our democracy is in crisis, and I think you'd agree, is no one has confidence in the voting system. And as soon as someone mentions the voting system, nowadays, they're told it's a conspiracy theory. But a couple of years ago, people all knew, people, Democrats were talking about the problems with electronic voting machines. So the crisis in democracy is no one actually trusts our voting system. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that could be a crisis in democracy. I mean, that's a you're kind of opening a can of worms here, Lee, because, uh, I mean... I think one of the crises, I've been complaining about this for 20 something years now. Uh, democracy is not the 
goal. Uh, democracy is a means to an end. The founding fathers did not view democracy as a goal. They viewed it as a threat. And I think we need to stop identifying democracy as the thing, right? What, what made America special was the protection of individual rights. And the founding fathers devised a system. It is a democratic system. It's, you know, a constitutional republic, but they devised a system with the intent to protect individual rights, uh, and to limit the power of government. Democracy is a much broader term, and it includes a lot of horrible, horrible things like mob rule. I mean, democracy as a, as a as an abstract goal is is absolutely stupid. And the fact that people use democracy as the abstract goal should tell you something, because if they're not talking about the protection of individual rights, which is what makes America special and is is what made America the best country. Uh, in my opinion, uh, that that was ever created. So, you know, when people say we have a crisis in democracy, part of me says, like, great, I don't want mob rule. I would like to return to a very limited government where the mob, you know, where 51 percent of the people can't vote away the rights of 49 percent of the people. I want very limited power and I want individual rights. How to achieve that might be through a democratic process. But the idea that, you know, that universal suffrage is the ethical solution is absolutely ludicrous. And I was thinking yesterday about the fact that, like they've given, I agree with everything you said, the the way they've given democracy a bad name, and because they talk about it all the time, they always mention democracy, Democrats especially. Joe Biden has done any number of speeches where he talks about democracy, yet the founding fathers would have thought that the threats of free speech we're facing are a huge threat to democracy. Would you agree with that from what you know about the founding fathers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they wrote explicitly about that. And, and I think, you know, the, there can be there can be softer threats that which, which are easy to to maybe fly beneath our radar. And those softer threats are cultural issues. And, you know, uh a self-censorship or private censorship or uh, the change in the culture so that people don't uh, want to be able to have free and open dialogue, even if the government is not doing that censorship, that's a cultural change that absolutely affects uh, the the outcome of elections and what people, what what's considered, you know, it's the Overton window, what's considered acceptable discourse and what isn't. So I, I think... I think most people would agree the the issue with the United States that's the the biggest thing we need to, to focus on right now is is the decaying culture. I mean, the political apparatus we can't fix the decaying culture by voting the right person in. Um, that this is a this is a much more systemic problem. Um, and I see. I mean, you know, you brought up Bastille Day. <sighs> Look. <laughs> The French, for those who don't know their history, the French Revolution was pretty messy. It was a lot of different interest groups, lots of vague abstractions, people arguing about uh, concepts that they didn't even fully understand, trying to implement contradictory concepts. It became just this struggle uh, for power between different people. It was bloody. It lasted forever. Basically, everyone, I mean, even the people that, that we view as the, the tyrants end up getting themselves beheaded like Robespierre. So I, I think we're kind of in that mode right now. We're very close to just 
groups struggling for power by any means necessary, trying to grab the brass ring. No, I agree with you. And I'm seeing that, and we've been talking about it on the show this week. Worldwide, the wheels are coming off. The fact that Draghi's out and Bojo's out, two of the G7 that were posing for pictures and smiling and giving thumbs up just three weeks ago are out. And what you're seeing in Sri Lanka and what you're seeing in Holland, and I've said the lack of press coverage of these things, they're trying, the press is trying to suppress the truth about so many things. And what happens, like when you push down on a balloon, it pops up somewhere else. The balloon will get a rupture somewhere else on the balloon, not where you're pushing down. Does that make sense? And so when I see the press suppressing knowledge, they don't know where it's going to pop up and come to the fore. And I'm seeing world events accelerating. And I'll put it like this. I've asked a lot of our guests this week, and I'll ask you, Carter, just gut instinct, do you think Joe Biden will finish his term as president? Ooh. If you're yes. a betting man. Yes, I do think money. he will. It, I, it might be weekend at Bernie's uh, towards the end, but yes. Yes. Now, would you bet a lot of money or would you hedge that bet a little bit? No, I would absolutely hedge. I'm very uncomfortable with the question because uh, it's possible that I'm completely wrong. I mean, the only reason I'm saying that is because there is an advantage to Biden uh, right now f- for the leftist, which is he he has he's a puppet. So they can they can do whatever they want with Biden. No one really expects him to be particularly articulate anymore. They can push whatever policies through Biden they want. Uh, if if he were to uh, if he were to suddenly not become the president before his term is over and you ended up with Kamala Harris, I don't think she's I mean, I, I think she's got a lot of other problems, but I don't think she would be as easy to manage. And so I think there's a vested interest in kind of as long as the guy's breathing, keeping him in office so that people behind the scenes can be uh, pushing the agenda that they want via Biden. Now, I'll tell you who they're pushing, and he's he's pushing himself as the alternative to Biden. And it's the rumblings are out there, and there's been some movement on this. And I'm sure you'll have an opinion about him. And we'll talk to Ted Rawl in a second. I'm sure Ted will, too. But the person who's trying to position himself as an alternative to Biden is California Governor Gavin Newsom. Do you have an opinion yeah. about that, Carr? <laughs> Yeah, he is. Uh, he is. He's horrible. He's everything. He represents everything that should scare you about the modern left. He's he's a I don't want to say he's a wolf in sheep's clothing because I think he looks like a wolf. But a lot of people are fooled by his smile and charisma and slick behavior. But uh, and, and, you know, his he, he does have a decent amount of charisma, but he is uh, an absolute horror show. So you're saying he's a wolf in wolf skulling? I guess. I mean, it depends. I, again, I think, look, there's a lot of people in California. I remember when he was mayor of San Francisco right here in the Bay Area, and uh, people just love him. It's it's uh, it's kind of the Kennedy effect, right, where they're like, oh, he's so, I don't, I don't know if he's good looking or not. I can't tell, but 
apparently like, oh, he's good looking and has charisma. He's just very attractive guy. So they want to they want to listen to him and they like him. And he he speaks the the magic words that the progressive left likes. You know, they get frustrated sometimes that he doesn't move as fast as they want, but he's their guy. And uh, he's like a competent Beto. And that should scare you. And I'll just mention one name to, for people to keep an eye on is London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco. Just keep an eye on London Breed, because a few years ago, I went to a number of San Francisco City Hall meetings and it was thrown out because, you know, I talked. I, I asked questions they didn't like. But when I was at the San Francisco City Hall meetings, London Breed was on the city council and she was the only one of the city council people who struck me as even borderline I won't say impressive, but competent as a politician. I didn't agree with her, but she was the only one who struck me. So do you think London Breed has a future in national politics? You you probably know quite a bit about her. Right, Carr? Yeah, I, yeah she's been able to uh, tap dance around some real, what I would have called scandals or real things. I, I think so. Um, I mean, look, if Kamala Harris can get her butt into the White House, uh, then there's no stopping London. Certainly, she should be able to do that. And I mean, also Kamala I Harris say, is not competent. London Breed sounds like it's a fantastic name. I don't know what. It, I, I make your own jokes. In the short break we take before we talk to our friend Ted Rawl, here on the backstory. Backstory with guest co-host Carter Lairn. We're joined now by a good friend of the show, Ted Rawl. Hey, Ted, how you doing? I'm okay, Lee. How are you doing? Doing all right. So I want to have you on the show, partially because I've been saying this all week. When I want to find out about history, talk to a commie. And here's why I say that. <laughs> no, but if you notice, people who are actual communists have a far better grasp of history than people who are Democrats or Republicans. Would you say that's true, Ted? Well, I would, I would, I, I consider that to be a compliment. And it so is. therefore I will take it. Uh, I, I think it's true um, that, uh, you know, Marxism kind of requires a historical perspective. And I think, um, you know, you Marxists can sort of take comfort in the cycles of history, uh, you know, things might not be, things might be capitalist now, but you know, there's a, you know, there's a communitarian impulse out there that will reassert itself from time to time. And I, I heard this about Marx. Someone once said, Marx was a great historian, a lousy economist. It was a person critical of Marx, but they, were, they pointed out he was a great historian and futurist. Have you heard of that, Carter? Uh, I have heard that phrase, but I'm not qualified to judge Marx's uh, knowledge of history. So, and uh, sure, and, and I, I am to some extent because I've read Marx, but Marxist 
when I talk to real Marxists, they do know a lot about history. And I wanted to have you on today as a dual citizen of the U.S. and France, because I've been studying revolutions, uh, Ted. I spent the last couple of weeks looking into the Russian Revolution of 2017, and it led me back to France. And so I thought we'd talk about that, particularly on Bastille Day. Now, today's Bastille Day, do people in France actually care about Bastille Day? Is it an important day? Yeah, the, it's, it's the equivalent of the 4th of July. It, it's their 4th of July. Okay, so now, how would you, and also aside from the fact that, that you're a commie and would know history, you're also a storyteller who's done graphic novels, right? That are telling fictional stories. That's true. And I think you could tell this well. So That's true. tell the story of Bastille Day in as dramatic a fashion as you like, Ted. Well, the funny part is it all involves the Marquis de Sade and uh, a lot of alcohol consumption. So Paris, like many most European cities uh, of the late 18th century, uh, had didn't have potable water. So people drank a lot of beer and wine all day long. So people were constantly kind of in a state of drunkenness uh, out in the streets. And, you know, when you're drunk and it's hot, uh, alcohol makes you even more drunk, right? So uh, riots used to start out pretty easily, and uh, people were bored, no television, no internet. So uh, the Bastille prison was in the middle of Paris. Um, it was, an, an, you know, basically almost nearly unoccupied. And um, the Marquis de Sade was uh, being held uh, in under rather luxurious circumstances, really. Um, the uh, he was a he was a he was a tax evader and he published obscenity, uh, and so he was an annoyance to the crown. But he was a noble, so he was allowed to have a a, a cook. He had uh, his own he had carpets and his li personal library. I mean, you know, yes, he's in prison, but he's like living large. Um, but anyway, he was you know like the people down on the ground, drunk from you know his personal wine stash, and uh, and he was kind of crazy. And uh, one afternoon on the 14th of July, uh, he starts 1787. Uh, he starts, um, sorry, 1789. He is hanging out uh, at his window and he starts yelling down to the crowd uh, that people are being uh, tortured and murdered in the Bastille. At the time, there were only, uh, there were, I think, single digit number of, of prisoners, all pretty privileged. Certainly no one was being tortured much less murdered. Uh, they weren't even, I think, even being, they were only mildly inconvenienced by being in prison. But the crowd, he he managed to rile up the crowd. And they, uh, and, and in the end, they, they, so they stormed the prison. They, uh, they demanded that the warden allow them in. Uh, they, uh, the warden complied because he was frightened. Uh, they murdered him and put his head on a pike. They freed the, the they freed the uh, the inmates, and then they the French Revolution began. Uh, sort of, you know, it's it's a glorious event in that it, it's literally the first uprising that could credibly be sort of proto-Marxist. It's the first uprising that sort of establishes the idea of equality and liberty as being Western values. Uh, you know, uh, in a in a way that's you know 
after the American Revolution, which is really kind of an independent struggle more than a class revolution. This is a class revolution. It's it's a really a ma- very very important historical event, but it started out in in a pretty unseemly stupid way, <laughs> and well, uh, and it's a it's a hilarious. Well, story. also a g- great great telling of it, Ted. And did you learn anything there, Carter? Uh, I did. I mean, uh, I, I knew the story generally, but, uh, I didn't realize Marquis de Sade's role, uh, in it, which is, which is pretty funny. And I, I don't know if Ted would agree with this, but I kind of viewed the Bastille as, uh, an eventuality. Like if it wasn't that it would have been something else. You already had the, you know, you had the Necker being dismissed, which was pissing people off. You had the, the third estate doing their national assembly thing and getting locked out and doing, I think, the wasn't the the tennis court uh, oath before that as well. Like so you had you had a lot of like pressure that something was going to happen. It just seemed it, some, there needed to be a spark. I think that's totally right, Carter. Um, there's a uh, there were there's a lot of dry tinder and uh, there was no question that something if, if that hadn't happened, something else was going to happen. Um, revolution seemed I mean, I think was inevitable. Um, so yeah, it, the, the mood was, 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 you know, was hot. Now here's a question for both of you, Carter and Ted Rawl. Do you see that same environment today that there's a pressure and a powder keg and something could spark it? It could be anything. Do you see that worldwide and particularly in the U S now guys? Let's start with Carter. Oh, uh, okay. I think in the U.S., um, I see it brewing, but I would say, I mean, that the people of Paris were a lot hungrier and more destitute and desperate than than we are. So uh, it's going to take more than gas prices increasing and Netflix putting in ads to really get us to that point. But I do think that the U.S. is they're they're on that path uh but it's not like tomorrow or anything that's my opinion on that now ted you're in manhattan so you might have a different view but it's closer in manhattan than it is in some parts of the country ted Rawl, what's your answer well it's a good point lee that cities are uh you know usually uh, brewing grounds uh for revolution but i got to agree with carter um i don't think even in uh, places like LA that have like a terrible homelessness problem um, that in any way, uh, you know, it's home, the homeless are not going to be the people who start a revolution anyway. Um, I, I just don't think, you know, is the people, people are Americans are miserable or hungry or poor enough. Uh, they're not desperate. So, um, you know, one Che Guevara said that observed, I think accurately that people only resort to revolution um, after they feel like they have exhausted every possibility of the of, of the existing regime uh, being responsive to their desires and needs, um, they have to feel that you know, elect, in this case, electoral politics is completely bankrupt. Uh, that that there's no there's no that the courts are worthless. That there's just nothing. The bureaucrats, the bureaucrats, the uh, deep state. No one cares, and nothing's going to ever get better. We're not there yet. I mean, people still vote. People still participate. Uh, you know, the the system may be rotten and corrupt, but it's but most 
Americans haven't given up on it yet. Well, I would say that a potential event that could set it off, if they arrest Donald Trump, do you think that could be the powder keg spark for a lot of people? In an environment of high gas prices and food shortages, arresting Donald Trump might set off a certain percentage of population. I think it's, look, I think the arresting Donald Trump is not going to happen. But if it did happen, uh, first of all, you'd be looking at a counter-revolutionary right-wing um, kind of impulse slash uprising. And I think it would end up taking the form of sort of disorganized individual um, acts of, let's say, domestic terrorism, for lack of a better word. But, you know, individuals would be taking matters into their own hands. There might be some uh, groups that are relatively small in number that would try to carry out some kind of terrorist act, mass shooting, whatever, uh, assassinations. But I don't think you would see a popular uprising. I think 99.99% of the population would, 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 say, would react to it and say, wow, that's, that's pretty crazy. And so, you know, a lot of people would be against it, but you know, you would not have mobs in the streets. Carter, yeah, uh, I, I, I mean, I think I agree with Ted on this. Um, I mean, there's definitely ardent Trump supporters who might be those lone wolf individuals who go and try and and do something uh, extreme. But I think even, you know, even if we say all the people that voted for him, which is a substantial number of people, uh. <sighs> Voting for someone and starting a riot on their behalf, or, or or you know picking up arms and doing something violent on their behalf, are are very different things. I will say that one thing that gives me hope about the U.S. Uh, I guess it's hope if you're if you're not wanting a revolution, um, is you know unlike France and and basically you know any of the other countries that we can compare it to, China, uh, you know Russia in 1917. Um, what you what you have in the U.S. is the potential. You have a potential uh, uh, pressure valve, which is you can the the federal government can can lose a lot of power, uh, and that can seep into states, and people can start focusing on their state governments. And I think you, there can be a renewed sense of well, maybe maybe my state government is 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 something that I can trust and work within that system. And so, uh, especially in light of the recent Supreme Court rulings, the whole barrage of them, uh, most of them, maybe not all, but most of them really are about, uh, I think really help to make us, the differences between states more pronounced. And you'll start to see uh, states becoming less homogenous and that might be the way out that avoids a complete revolution. If that, if that's what happens, then you maybe people start to reorganize and and trust their state governments and or act within their state governments and kind of give up on Washington. Now, I'd say the counter to that would be that the other thing that the facts you're stating accurately, I think, could result in is states seceding. You could see some states who are saying we don't want to be part of this and sure uh, you, 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 so i think you're accurately saying the facts but it could go a different way where it could i'm going to ask that about something that's related slightly so card i didn't know anything about this 
until a couple of weeks ago. And I'm going to ask Ted about it, and I'm sure he'll be able to tell us a lot about it. Did you know anything, do you know anything about the Paris Commune? Oh, man. The name rings a bell, but Me? no. Yeah. But Ted can educate all of us. No, no, right. And the reason I asked that, Carter, is because you're a smart guy. Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard of it. About, Someone talked about it at some point, but I couldn't tell you anything about it. But the name does ring a bell. Right. And the fact that you're a smart person and can't name much about it tells me that generally, if if Carter Laren doesn't know much about it, what hope does the average person have? But Ted, you know about it, right? I know about it, oh. yeah. It's uh, it's it's important to Marxist history. Yes, Karl Marx wrote about it, and it came up in 1917 in Russia. But can you talk about the Paris Commune, and then we'll have you talk about its importance today, and its importance today in in our current political system, looking at the mistakes that may have been made in the Paris Commune. What is the Paris Commune, Ted Rawl? The Paris Commune was a popular uprising uh, by the people of Paris following the uh, French loss in, against Germany in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 1871. And uh, the, uh, the, basically, the people of Paris uh, rose up in part to reject Paris being occupied by German troops and in part to protest the incompetence of the political leadership that had led them to uh, led them to uh, uh, to defeat against the Germans, and in part to try to restore the ideals of the revolution, which had been kind of lost and corrupted by uh, the restoration of the Bourbon dynasty, as well as the uh, uh, you know the rise of you know obviously uh, Napoleon the Third and all that stuff. So the, uh, and there was also a, uh, sort of general economic, the usual economic and, uh, class, uh, complaints and grievances. So it was a witch's brew and, uh, it was, it was the, it sort of set, it's sort of like the apex of what we think of as a typical French, uh, Parisian uprising, uh, people block, you know, they, they set up barricades and, in the narrow streets of Paris and tried to keep uh, everyone out. They declared that Paris was a uh, independent, basically quasi, so, well, pseudo, I would say, proto-socialist uh, state. Um, it was put down in short order by the, by the authorities and the, com the communers were massacred. And, and it was a, but it's a glorious defeat in that it sort of showed what could be done for a short time. It's kind of like the Sepoy Rebellion in uh, India. In it's sort of they lost, but it showed that you know the possibilities. So even things like uh, the Paris 1968 student uprising uh, at the Sorbonne and uh, even Occupy Wall Street all kind of look back at the Paris Commune as sort of the this. Uh, it's kind of funny. It's a glorious defeat, but it's still a defeat. And also, it was uh, the syndicalist. It was a socialist anarchist somewhat thing. That was a fact, big faction there, wasn't it, in the Paris Commune? Yeah, that's true. Yes. And so if there's a place 
and people in the world that seem most likely this is an inversion of left and right. And when you point out that right thing, I would say the farmers in Holland or the truckers in Canada are as close to the Paris Commune sort of spirit as we've seen recently. I agree, Occupy Wall Street in some ways. But now, now in the current political environment, the people who are taking on the establishment, what happened up in Ottawa was in some ways analogous to what happened in Paris Commune. And it's a very different take on it. But I noticed the right seem to represent the workers more than the establishment left. Does it make any sense, Ted? Well, it does. And it's been something that kind of perplexed me until I kind of realized that this is all about the P word, Lee. It's, it's about populism. And uh, the, the, you know, le the left used to embrace populism. Think about uh, figures like Huey Long um, and Robert LaFollette. And, uh, but now the American left uh, rejects it, and it's been left completely to the right. So, and populism is a very powerful force in Western politics, and particularly in the United States. So, I think when you see the energy in the streets, you know whether it's January sixth or what, or or Charlottesville or whatever, it's on the right, and it's and, and you know Trumpism is is firmly based in the populist impulse. But I think the left has, in in my view, mistakenly. Uh, rejected populism. And uh, uh, trivia note, Huey Long from populist from Louisiana, Huey P. Newton from the Black Panthers was named after Huey Long. Did you know that, Ted? I did not know that. That's very cool. Though. Yeah, that Huey P. Newton, Huey P. Long, right? And, and Huey's family was from Louisiana. So just interesting because it, it seems somewhat far-fetched if you look at them, but it's the facts. So, uh, I, so I agree. And that's because I would say the neoliberals, look at who is taking the side of the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab. That is establishment as you can get. And the Democrats are all, without exception, on that side. No one is arguing against the Great Reset from the de Democrat side. Does that make sense? Y you say that, Carter? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I think Ted is correct in that the, you know, when I was growing up, the 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 quote working man, which is a phrase I hate, but whatever, uh, the quote working man was represented by the left. It was the left who spoke to everyday Americans. It was the left that tried to pick up issues that resonated with them. Um, and the, you know, and, and I think that is oft, often populism. Sometimes there's principles behind it, but often it's just a form of populism to try and, um, you know, get votes, but they have abandoned that completely. And, and I think, you know, I, I guess since Ted, I, I don't want to mischaracterize it. It sounds like you're a Marxist. Uh, it, they've abandoned the class, uh, structure. They, they, they don't view things through class anymore. They've abandoned that, um, apparatus and they've, they've, they've switched their taxonomy to, 
uh, race and gender and other things, but they they no longer really speak in terms of class struggles. So they're not the same left that they were when I was younger. I, oh, I agree completely, Carter. <laughs> I mean, I can't believe we're, we're agreeing on all this stuff. But yeah, no, I, I, I that is that's completely true. I mean, um, I think defenders of what uh, deriders would call identity politics, right? Um, they'll say that it's about intersectionality, right? That it, right. that basically, like racism is a is an is an is a uh, expression of class uh, warfare from uh, whites to blacks, from rich to poor, uh, and all other forms of oppression, whether it's uh, transphobia or uh, so mm-hmm. on, are are uh, sexism, etc., misogyny. That these are all expressions of class war uh, of of the class struggle and that therefore they haven't abandoned a class analysis but if you don't ever talk about class analysis in economic terms there's really no intersectionality because you know intersect like even when we talk about um when on the left the american left talks for example about racism they're talking more about like police brutality or issues like that but they rarely talk really about for example the income divide uh, between blacks and whites, uh, or you know how that has a uh, Marxist class analysis, um, you know, way of looking at it. They focus on the symbolic stuff about you know using the N word or whatever. It's it's about verbiage. It's about vocabulary. It's not about it's not about uh, economics. Right, and and, and I Ted, think if you're going to take your, sorry, go ahead, Lee. No, I was just going to say that I think also. The communards in the French in the Paris Commune have won on a lot of the issues. History has, for instance, in the Paris Commune, women's equality was a big issue, right, Ted? It was, and that's settled. In the world we live in today, 2022, none of the even the worker issues. You had factory workers in horrible conditions that no one is arguing to go back to. So I would say in some ways they were a victim of their own success. They were historically proven right. And for instance, the women's and the universal suffrage issues, which were a big deal in the Paris Commune, today are taken for granted by even people on the so-called right. Would you agree with that, Ted? Well, I, I would agree with that, except for the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which uh, has a lot of women thinking that they've just uh, that that the settled matter that, you know, the, gen- the gender equality is something that uh, at, at least we we take for granted as an ideal, even if it's not obviously true in terms of uh, pay equity or, for example, hey, how many women are in Congress? Um, but but even now, even legally on the books, uh, you know, you, you have. Basically, there's two laws that discriminate by by sex in the United States, right? The draft and abortion rights. And, um, you know, I I think that that's we can't ignore that. Well, you can if the law was you could only abort. So abortion has been used to kill a lot of women. Of course, a lot of people do gender selection with abortion. So I would argue that's not exactly. And by the way, Planned Parenthood found that 20% of women who get abortion do so because their boyfriend or husband want them to. It's not even their choice to get an abortion. They're pressured by a man. 
not exactly a feminist position. What do you think are? Well, I'm one of these people who's uh, I think both sides of the abortion debate probably dislike me because uh, I'm kind of firmly in the wow, this is a complex gray area issue. And um, I, I think both sides misrepresent the other side. Right. It's not you know, if you're coming from the right on this, uh, it's not that you're trying to take away rights from women. It's that you honestly believe that humans are being murdered. And that's your that's your stance. And that's a legitimate stance. I think I could argue against some of their points, certainly uh, for early term pregnancies. But but it's not a it's not a we hate women stance. It's a we don't want to kill babies stance. Similarly, um, you know, the people on the left are characterized as wanting to, you know, kill babies. And that's not what they want to do. They want they want to give women equal opportunity and let them make choices. Well, some of them so. want to kill babies. I, I'm talking about that. But sure. I know a lot of women who are pro-life, a lot. And so, so, T- Ted, what do you think about that? What do you think about women who are pro-life? Well, I think there's a lot of, I mean, I know women who are pro-life. Um, there's nothing, uh, I look, I, I agree with Carter. It's, it is a, I think the pro, I, I'm personally pro-choice, I, I, be, I believe, but that said, I think that the pro-life position is a morally and ethically upstanding and valid position because I think life begins and, at, at, at conception. That's that's just science. And I think, but I think women have to have the ability to murder their unborn children. And I hate children. to end this civil uh, discussion yeah. on the issue of abortion, <laughs> but we're out of time. Carter Laren and Ted Rawl. It was a pleasure. It was a Ted. pleasure to have you both on. Great conversation, guys. Likewise. And great history lesson, Ted. And. Good luck to Wyatt Reed. Hope he enjoys his trip to the Middle East. Great show. We'll be back tomorrow with another great show on The Backstory.